Thank you, Meredith. Well, isn't that true? Mary wrapped a present to the world. She gave us Jesus. And Jesus gives, gives us, not gave, he gives us eternal life. Moving into my message this morning, I want to say this. Eternal life is impossible without knowing and interacting with the voice of God. So I want to begin by challenging you to think about this as I, at the beginning of this message. What is God whispering to you? What is God saying to you? Where is that voice of God in your life? The title of this morning's message is going to be Godliness and the Voice of God. Last Sunday, I changed the focus of our sermon series. As we near the end of the year, we're busying our lives with getting ready for the holiday season and prayerfully gaining some resolutions to celebrate and to commit to and develop in the new year. I felt it was vital to encourage each and every one of us to seek out the voice of God in our lives, in our assembly here, and to see the fruit of that as we move into the new year. Pastor Mark Batterson, in his new book, Whisper, said, Learning how to hear the voice of God is the solution to a thousand problems. It is also the key to discovering our destiny and fulfilling our potential. As I admitted last week, I'm usually quite leery about talking about the voice of God, especially teaching about the voice of God. Namely, because it's such a subjective, dare I say, mysterious sort of thing. We're talking about the voice of the omnipotent, omniscient God. You know, who am I, who are any of us, right, to stand and to begin to talk to each other about the voice of such a magnificent God? So yes, I, I usually stand in awe and usually decide to sit down and sit that one out in talking about the voice of God and further encourage you to seek it out in your life. However, as we neared the end of the year and we were talking about things Christians say, that was the name of the series we were doing, I became convicted and I said, you know, as a healthy church, again, I appreciate our church and I love our church for our understanding, the people, the fellowship. And as I sat there thinking about it, I said, this isn't, this isn't what we should be focusing on as we move to the end of the year. Things Christians say, the erroneous interpretations that are often out there. Because I believe most of us know that. We know the false teachings that are out there. And I would imagine, I don't like to hear them, and I imagine many of you don't want to hear me regurgitate them to you. So, you know, I became a bit convicted in that, and I said, no, no, no. My role in the pulpit is to remind us about discerning the voice of God. And it becomes very important as we move into the holidays. Because for many of us, the holidays are very joyful, and, you know, we're overjoyed at the holidays. But then for many of us, we're not. You know, some of us find ourselves frustrated, hurt, remembering loved ones, or whatever it might be. And it's a time where we do need to discern the voice of God in our lives. They say that this is one of the most exhilarating times of year, but also one of the most depressing, if not the most depressing time of the year. I like and trust Mark Batterson's work. The book Whisper is a great resource. I would urge everybody to get your hands on it. And the reason why is because he writes in a manner that is reasonable. It's objective. It, it gives you information. He gives, he's full of knowledge. And he gives you information and allows you to use that information to discern how it would affect your spiritual life. He presents what I like to call round, well-rounded truths. That, you know, he, he kind of covers all the different corners. I always learn new things, and I promise, I had to write this in my notes, I promise this is not a promotional sermon. I'm not promoting Mark Sermon's works. I'm not promoting his book. But I do believe that the voice of God, and I believe Mark Batterson's book, to be one of the more realistic, more enlightening resources on the voice of God. 
I can honestly stand before you all and say I've never recommended a resource on the voice of God to anybody ever other than your conscience. And for me, Mark Batterson's book does kind of stand out as something that I can encourage. The reason being is that, I'll give you an example. He begins his most recent book, Whisper, by talking about what he calls the Thomatus effect. And I did some research, and this is a very popular method in hearing, in, in learning how to uh, hear different music and different uh, sounds. Uh, they say that if you, if you can't hear it, you definitely can't sing it. Right? I imagine that that's something in music. Right? If you can't hear the tune, you're definitely not going to be able to sing that tune. So now let's reverse that into our spiritual lives. If you can't hear God speaking, you're definitely not going to be able to sing God speaking. You're not going to be able to live God speaking. It's not going to be a reality. So that's very important for us. Do we, are we guilty maybe at some points of the Thomas effect in our lives where we have selective hearing? We can only hear certain things. And in Whisper, he uses that true concept there in regards to hearing and influences our spiritual lives and calls to account in regards to our spiritual lives and how we might be suffering the Thomas effect in our spiritual lives by having selective hearing. So in moving into our message, what sort of life hears the amplified voice of God? I believe that's a good place to start. What sort of life do, must be lived in order to hear the voice of God. And I know all of us have heard the famous catchphrase, sin cannot dwell in the presence of God, which this comes at, from an understanding of the Holy of Holies, right? The Jews had this small component place where they believed God was present and no man was allowed to enter there, right? The high priest would enter once a year by, you know, by atonement, by a whole ceremony to be able to enter into this holy place, the presence of God. Because it was, and he would enter in with white linen on, which was free from any stain, and he would enter in by the unblemished blood of a no, the lamb, the blood of an unblemished lamb, without defect, and this would be his covering, so to speak. This white linen and this unblemished lamb would be his covering that he would be allowed to enter into the presence of God. All of this to simply give us the understanding of God that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. So the opposite of sin is godliness. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk, what does it mean to be godly? I've heard some people here uh, talk about one of our frustrations is when people say, aren't Christians supposed to act godly? And I would agree with that. I don't act. But I believe godliness is not something we put on. It's not an act. It's something that is, is about us. It's a trait that emanates from us when we understand the voice of God. Sin can muffle the voice of God in your life. I believe we all probably know that all too well. I want to take us to a text that actually amplifies that. It's Romans chapter 1. And I'm just going to read through the chapter. And then I'm going to know I'm actually, no, I'm not. That's a rather long chapter. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at verse 18 and then read to the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God, the Apostle Paul writing here to the church at Rome, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. 
but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of a formed corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons and due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see it fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinances of God, Those that practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give heartily approval, give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, there's many theologians, many scholars that would use that text to talk about our society today. And I imagine as I read through some of those horrendous words, you may have thought of our society today. You may have thought of how many have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This text primarily is speaking about Israel, because Israel had the truth of God. You see, I I become rather frustrated when I hear modern teachers use this for everybody on our planet, that, you know, many people have wandered and God's given them over to their degrading passions, and all sorts of chaos has been used in that text. However, what this is talking about is Israel was given the truth of God. They were set up as the people of God. They were given the law of Moses. They were given the prophets that would come to them and tell them about the details of God. They were given all of this. And yet, even given the the truth, they, just like all of us humans, decided, I'm going to lean upon my own understanding. I think these nations around me know better. So we're going to worship their gods. We're going to worship their images. And we know Israel fell into idol worship of Asherah and Baal and all these different false gods. They exchanged the truth for a lie. Why? Because they did not give thanks to God, and they did not believe that God was worthy to be acknowledged and worshipped. And what does it say? It says that he gave them over to a depraved mind. He allowed them, once you sin, and if you continue in that sin, eventually God will just give you over to that depraved mind. We think of uh, another text that is used in the New Testament is, give them over to Satan, serve them over to Satan. In other words... If you're going to have it your way, and we see this all throughout the prophets, the prophets remind Israel again and again, God will reward you in keeping with your idolatry. If you want to worship nothing, you will get nothing. If you want to worship a false god, God will allow you to believe that's true and lead you in your deceit and allow you to be deceived if you continue to lean upon your own understanding, obviously calling Israel, and maybe even us at times, to repentance. Israel suppressed the voice of God. And that's why by the time you get to the first century, you see they miss out on the whole hope of Israel. They miss out on the Messiah. They miss out on what God had for them. And that's what the Apostle Paul is explaining there to the church at Rome, that this truth had been given to Israel, and they completely snuffed out the voice of God. So in my life, as I begin to look at this and I build my life upon this truth, understanding that Israel 
went after idols. They did not stay true to the one true God. And being that I have now come to an understanding of the one true God through Jesus Christ, thank God for his grace. I ask myself, well, I know that I'm still a sinner in need of God's grace. I'm a saint, sure, sanctified by the blood of Jesus. But how do I make sure that sin's not muffling out the voice of God in my life? How do, I, how do I reassure myself? How do I become convicted that I'm doing everything necessary to trust in the grace of God to remove the sin, but also in myself to move away from sin? What do I do? And many of you, as you were leaving last week, I either handed you a, a devotional book or I handed you a growth chart. And I was hoping that you would use one or two of those throughout your week because I believe those two things, specifically those two things, will lead you in this regard to move away from sin. For example, the Second Peter 1 growth chart, which is in the foyer um, when you're leaving, this is something that I, I can almost say I base my life on at this point. In Second Peter chapter 1, there's a text that stands out to me a lot, and it says that if you desire to be fruitful and effective with the use of the knowledge of God, grow in these things. Be continually increasing in these things. And it gives you a list of eight different things, godliness being one of them. Godliness, self-control, knowledge, those are the three I've been working on for the last three months. So uh, I'm trying to remember the rest. But um, there's a bunch. And, uh, but those three have been impacting to me. So right now my life is focused on godliness. I said, what does it mean to grow in godliness? And by the time you leave here this morning, you're going to know what it means to grow in godliness. And prayerfully you'll take some time and challenge yourself and say, what about the other eight things in Second Peter chapter 1? Am I growing in all of those things? Again, the text is very, very highlighting. It says that... If these things are increasing in your life, you will be neither unproductive nor useless in your use of the knowledge of God. They must be increasing. It says that. They must be increasing, if they're increasing. And it says that man that does not have these things increasing is basically of a defiled mind. So that, that calls us to account. I know when I read that text, I'm always like, wow. You know, how can we ask what should we do? We, it's right there in front of us. Grow in these things. Make sure these things are increasing in your life. And now, I imagine none of us are perfect. I know I'm not. So uh, that's nice that I imagined, right? So uh, I imagine none of us are perfect, and I know I'm not. So in my life, I know that I'm not always going to be increasing in every one of those things perfectly. Self-control, peace, knowledge, godliness. So what do I do? And what I've learned is I'm going to rest content in maybe every four or five weeks and saying I'm going to grow in that specifically. I'm going to focus in on that, and I'm going to allow that to lead me for the next six to eight weeks or maybe four to eight, four to six weeks. And again, I haven't quite figured out how to make eight work with a 12-month calendar. So still working on that. And uh, that's, again, that's where I believe it's important. If you want to grow and move away from sin, the first thing you should focus on is Second Peter chapter 1. It tells you so specifically the things to grow in. In Genesis chapter 3, we would say that Adam was given covenant with God. He had that voice of God, right? He's walking around with him in the Garden of Eden. And then there's this moment after Adam and Eve sin where... You hear God say, Adam, where are you? And I've used this text many times to talk about God doesn't... It's not that Adam was somewhere where God couldn't see. That sounds rather silly, that you could be somewhere where God can't see. So it wasn't that God was looking for Adam. So why does God say, Adam, where are you? And in my understanding, I've, I've realized that that's Adam, God calling Adam to account. You've sinned, now where are you? You've listened to your own understanding. What's the result? You've worshipped false idols. How do you feel? You see, and, and that's where what sin does. Sin causes Adam to hide. Adam and Eve hide. They lose their, their sense of identity. 
They had this relationship with God. They're in the garden of God, eating of the tree of life. Hopefully not eating as much from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they had this access to this garden, and yet God says, Adam, where are you? And what he is doing is he's highlighting the fact that Adam is hidden from God. He's trusted in his own understanding, and now he's hiding. He's lost his identity of who he is, his sense of purpose. Essentially, he's lost eternal life. And we know that the fruit of that story, after Genesis chapter 3, is that Adam is now placed outside the garden, and cherubs are set up to guard the place of the garden. In other words, no sin enters in the presence of God. Adam is given a covering, and ultimately we know that points to the law of Moses. That's the reality of what God gave Israel. He gave them a covering. He highlighted why man can't dwell in the presence of God, because man will always decide, I think we know better. You know, Eve goes to the tree, looks at it, says it looks like it's pretty good, it looks like it might be, taste well, and uh, it's also going to make us wise, according to this serpent that just told me. So let's eat, even though God said not to. So, again, sin will cause you to hide, lose your identity, lose your sense of purpose, lose that voice of God, totally snuffs out the voice of God, and essentially it affects everything about your eternal life. Because, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, eternal life is impossible without knowing and interacting with the voice of God. I had read an interesting thing in Common Prayer this week. Uh, It was talking about Church Father Ambrose. I believe he's from the 4th century. And uh, Church Father Ambrose was, uh, he was a politician that ended up uh, repenting of being a politician. And uh, he repented and he uh, ended up going back to the politicians and holding the politicians in his day accountable to the things of God. Specifically, the, one of the emperors he had went to was Theodosius in Rome. And uh, in the common prayer, there was a part, part where Ambrose, Ambrose goes to Emperor Theodosius and he says to him, you at one point did mighty things for God. You fed the poor, you did this, you did all these great things, but now temptation has overtaken you. You've done all these mighty things, but now temptation has overtaken you. And that was interesting because I thought about that. I said, how often have I done the right thing, but then all of a sudden I find myself not doing the right thing? Right? I think we can all say we've done that. You're doing the right thing for so long, and then all of a sudden you find yourself not doing the right thing. Temptation has overcome you. And then, of course, I was reminded of the Lord's Prayer, right, which we had discussion about this morning. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I said, that, that is my prayer, that God would not lead me into temptation. Now, as Brian brought up this morning, talking about the word temptation. Temptations can be good, right? There's good things that you're tempted with, tempted to serve Jesus and the mission field. Hopefully that we would say, we would agree that's a good temptation. But then, of course, there's plenty of bad temptation, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bad temptation. So I thought about this in my life, and I said, temptation is a bit subjective. It's kind of like the voice of God. So when we're saying, lead us not into temptation, it's a subjective thing. What are the things that Satan, if you will, is, is challenging you to focus on? What are the things that Satan's doing in your life or are wanting to do in your life that's distracting the voice of God, that's turning the volume down or, or uh, what was the word I used, overpowering the voice of God, that, that his, his voice is too high? That's temptation. And I began to think about this and began to think about sin. And this kind of leads into my point I wanted to make this morning is that we are responsible for the temptations and sins in our lives. You are responsible for your spiritual life. You are responsible, obviously, by the grace of God and with the Holy Spirit, but you are responsible for moving away from the things that would tempt you. You are responsible for knowing yourself. That's a part of that voice of God. 
It's a two-way thing. It's, it's me interacting with God, God speaking to me, and me holding myself accountable to that voice that God is speaking into my life. Obviously, it's hard to listen to if we don't know how to discern it, if we don't know how to seek the voice of God. So Romans 14 points out some details I wanted to talk about this morning, and just in regards to sin. In Romans 14, this is one of the texts about a good conscience, right? And there's a big argument in the early church as to, uh, well, if the idols don't exist, I actually still deal with this argument today. Um, if the idols don't exist and that piece of steak, sorry for contemporizing the message here, um, that, that piece of steak has been offered over to an idol, we're not allowed to eat it, right? That's what the ancient church would say. If it's been offered to an idol, you don't eat it. However, there were other people, obviously, that came up in the church and said, but the idols don't exist, and the steak looks really good. So if we know that the idol doesn't exist, what if I say that I'm going to eat this steak with my mind toward God, the one true God, not toward the idol? Can I eat the steak? And you would imagine right here in our text in Romans 14, yes, for some. If your conscience does not convict you of eating the steak, and if there's nobody around you that would be you know, harmed or affected in a bad way by what you're doing, go for it, or offended. That's another thing. It's good for Christians to know what offends the people around us so we don't try to intentionally offend them. So in Romans 14, the Apostle Paul basically says that each man, verse 5, one person regards, he's talking about days here specifically. That was another argument. You know, well, this day was holy to us before. This day is not holy to us. What do we do? Do we celebrate? Do we not celebrate? Again, the Jews were very meticulous on days. Like if you worked on the Sabbath, you could be stoned to death. You know, these were very serious things. So he says here, one person regards one day above another. Another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. See, one of my favorite Bible texts, if not my favorite Bible text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the goal of our instruction is this. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You cannot hear the voice of God without those three things. If you don't love from a pure heart, if you don't have a good conscience toward God, and you don't have a sincere faith, that's not the voice of God you're hearing. So it's important for us to know, develop a good conscience. And here we see that my conscience is not Brother Kevin's conscience. We have different things that we, we interact with God on. We have different temptations. We have different things that would trouble our relationship with God. We have different things that would snuff out that voice of God in our life. And it's our prerogative, it's our job to seek out the things of God, Second Peter chapter 1, great place to start, and to also move away from the things that are distracting us. I don't listen to what other people tell me distract me. I listen to what the voice of God and my conscience tell me distract me. You see, the two things about sin I want to make a point about here is all things are permissible. That's another text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, part of our reading this morning. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Because yes, by the grace of God, we've been given freedom to do all things. However, in your life, and this is where you have to have a responsibility, in your life, there's going to be things that are just not beneficial to the person that you are and to amplifying that voice of God in your life. And then, of course, everybody needs to be convinced in their own mind. You've got to get to know yourself a bit. I guess this is a good message to say that, right? We, we just have to get to know ourselves. When I have that intimacy with God, it's going to take two, right? Doesn't intimacy require two people? It requires you and God, just like a relationship. It requires two people. You have to both get to know each other, and it also helps if you happen to know yourself. So that's what we need to be doing in our relationship with God. In that common prayer I had mentioned before, it says one of the prayers at the end was, 
Lord, we do not always rush to do your will. Oftentimes we tiptoe our way into obedience, dragging old habits and mindsets with us. Help us to delight at your voice and to trust that your calling is always good news. I recently read a book about self-control and the power of harnessing such a virtue. The author had made a point that self-control skills are essential for pursuing our goals successfully. But it's the goals themselves that give us the direction and the motivation. You see, you can create as many borders as you want, but let's face it. If you do not want, if your goal, um, let me think of something you'd be, uh, I don't want to eat this much because I think it's going to make me chubby. Yes, that's me. Um, so uh, I, uh, I, don't want to do, I don't want to eat that food because I think it's going to make me chubby. Now I create, you know, let's say I uh, get all the food out of the refrigerator. I get all the food out of all the cabinets. I'd say to my brother, you know, you can't bring any more food into the house. And uh, I've created some good walls, right, against eating. But then if I just, I'm out on the road driving and I say, I'm going to stop at the supermarket and eat. You see, I created all those borders, but if I don't want to obey the borders, if the goal isn't really what I'm keeping in mind, the borders won't matter. And I thought that was a really interesting thought about self-control. Because you could set up all these false artificial borders all you want, but if if your goal isn't the real thing, isn't what's keeping you going, all those borders are just going to be frustrations in, in the midst of you going after the main goal. So think about that in your spiritual life. If the voice of God, if growing in godliness, growing in self-control, growing in patience are, are the things that will lead us to be effective and useful in the knowledge of God, what are the things that are keeping us away from that? What are, is that your goal? And if that is your goal, begin to highlight the things that keep you, move you away, move you in the opposite direction than those things. Because I want to make it my goal to delight at his voice. Because something, you know, the voice of God can be hard sometimes. You know, if you remember all the way back in the beginning, uh, Mount Sinai with Moses... When the people of God heard the voice of God, they weren't exactly clapping and you know, it wasn't a Pentecostal moment. It was a very fearful moment. And sometimes the voice of God speaks like that. God could be a bit harsh with us. So I want to delight at his voice. I don't want God to have to say, Mike, where are you? Why are you there? How did you put yourself into that position? Why are you feeling like that? Because you're not growing in the things that I told you to be growing in. So I want to delight at his voice. I don't want that voice to be frustrating in my life. And I want to trust in his calling. I want to trust the things that I believe about God, and I want to know that I really do believe them. In whatever calling and capacity we might find ourselves, just as God called out to Adam, I want to ask each and every one of you, where are you? Godliness is the art of setting our mind on the things that are above. Listening to and discerning the voice of God in our lives, and through our church community. That is the contrast to sin. As I begin to sit sit there, and I, again, this is a point I want to make. If you were to go out right now into our community and ask people, what does it mean to be godly? You know you would get a bunch of different definitions. I think that also speaks to the subjectiveness of godliness. Also to the subjectiveness of sin. Right? If sin is subjective and can affect you individually, and maybe what is sin to you might not be sin to me, then it's going to be the same thing on the opposite end godliness. Have you ever seen some people abuse their godliness? Abuse their reverence and their respect? I mean, you know, hopefully somebody's thinking about the Pharisees. Right? They had a godliness. What does the scripture say? It says, they had a formless, a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. Let us not be those people. If you don't want, I read a quote this morning by Rick Joyner, and I thought I had to include this in the message. If you don't want to succumb, succumb to the temptations of the tree of knowledge, 
Again, we're equating the tree of knowledge to leaning upon our own understanding about anything under the sun. If you do not want to succumb to the temptations of the tree of knowledge, then start eating of the tree of life. However, we do need to know where and what the tree of knowledge is so we don't eat from it. You see, and if we've identified that as our carnal mind, as that which works against all those things in 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll tell you that just very simply. Your sin is that which works against everything you see listed in 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you go to 2 Peter chapter 1 later on today, you open up your Bible and you say, knowledge, what's the opposite of knowledge? Ignorance. Ignorance would be sin. Is there ignorance in your life? How's, God, how's that working? You know, you just go through all of them. Self-control. Excessiveness would be the opposite. Lack of moderation. Godliness is reverence, respect, piety, and submission to the things of God. I was going to speak Greek to everybody, but I just figured that's just being fancy. So acting godly can be subjective and situational. Maybe it's different per occasion or whatever season you're in. Sometimes there's different seasons where godliness, you know, I, I asked myself this honestly recently, and I said, what does it mean to be godly? I want to be a godly person. I want to grow in godliness. And I realized that the answers were very vague, reverence, respect. And I was like, but that doesn't really, how do I grow in that specifically? And then I began to ask myself, maybe God is teaching me something in this moment in my life. In this season, God wants me to grow in something in regards to godliness. My question to myself was, of course, am I listening to the voice of God? Another way that I've grown in regards to godliness, and I'm going to end with this point here, is uh, by looking at people that I might consider godly. Right? That's, that's another thing. Or maybe somebody you consider, if you're talking about you want to grow in self-control, um, I might mention a book called by Walter Mitchell. It's M-I-S-C-H-E-L. Um, he, he's actually one of our gurus in our society on self-control. thought it was a really good book. And uh, one of the things I've learned to do is highlight certain people. And I'm, I'm going to make a point as I get to the close here. Um, I want to say why this is so vital. This is so vital because there's a popular Christian catchphrase that is so true. You might be the only Jesus people will ever see. And you might be the only Bible people ever read. That's a true statement. So while this message could be considered maybe by many of, many of us a very milk-of-the-word type of message, a very basic, simple message, I believe the application of this is for the, the adult, the mature, to really think through what it means to be godly, what it think, means to hear the voice of God, and to see that at work in our lives. So our grow and go, what we do here is a grow and go. Anything you grow in here, you have to be going out there with. It shouldn't only be a Sunday morning thing. Our grow and go is going to be exactly what we see on the front of our bulletin this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What habits or mindsets are possibly muffling out or drowning out the voice of God in your life? I want you to think about that. What habits or mindsets are getting in your way? Where or how in life is God calling you to take delight at his voice and maybe trust in his calling? Where is he leading you forward? Who might be some godly examples of that which you are looking to? And I'll just share, in closing, I'll share a personal point about myself. Lately, as I've been growing in godliness... I, uh, I've been praying about assertiveness. Many people would say I'm a pretty assertive guy. I've, you know, I've done debates and debated my faith. Um, however, there's other areas where I'm not assertive, and I would like to be. I think of an example for me would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was known for being a man for others, is a quote that he often used. And he had such a conviction in what he did that, again, this is a man that 
stood up against Adolf Hitler. And he had to stand there and he had to make a challenge of being godly. You want to talk about a real challenge of being a godly man. He had to stand in this position of, well, I could be a pastor. That, well, one option was he could be a pastor that got chipped off to America. Right? That solved the problem. He was here in America and he was fine in Harlem. However, he sat there and he prayed and he said, no, no, something's not right here. And he left and he went back to Germany. And he went back to Germany and you would imagine all of his friends were like, why would you come back to this God-forsaken place? And he said, if I do not suffer with the people here now, I'll have no right to speak to them at the end. You know, I have no right to speak to them when everything is cleared up. And that conviction is amazing. And I think about that in my life and I say, I want to be a man that has such conviction that I can move like that, that I can be so assertive in situations that I need to be because I know that is the voice of God speaking in my life. And that's where I'm at work. That's my, my personal life right now. I challenge you to think about that yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the example I could look to and I could cleave to. What is God speaking to you? What does he want you to grow in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your voice. Thank you for always being a wise God, for being way far beyond us, Lord, far beyond our understanding, and having secret things, secret things that you share with us intimately, Lord, as we discern your voice. I pray for each and every person here, Lord, that as we move into this holiday season, as we move into a new year, Lord, we would be discerning that voice. We would be listening intently to you, Lord. We would be growing in all that is necessary to have an amplified voice of God in our life. Thank you for going before us, Lord. Thank you for equipping us. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.